episode 18 of Shit Platypus Says. Fuck your tear gas! Fuck your tear gas! Fuck your tear gas! Fuck the police! Fuck the police! We're putting pressure! We're putting pressure! On the Whitney! On the Whitney! To remove! Warren Canders. Warren Canders. We want to acknowledge. We want to acknowledge that these pigs. That these pigs just arrested one of our friends. Just arrested one of our friends. And that the board member. And that the board member sells to them. Sells to them their shields. Their shields. Their tear gas. Their tear gas. And more. And more. This shit's connected. This shit's connected. The Whitney and the Blasio continue to prioritize profit above people and ignore community demand. To Adam Weinberg and to the Blasio, we demand you stop profiting off people's pain. We demand you remove more candles from your board. And while you're at it, why don't you remove Nancy Kerrigan's crowd too? Hey, The people that wrote the statement in art form, Hannah Black mm-hmm. and the other two black intellectuals, which is, by the way, how they've like, now been sort of identified. The black intellectuals. Um, well, like Ben Davis was sort of, Ben Davis wrote this article uh, for, was it Artnet? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He, he's a New York, or no, he's the art critic for Artnet. Yeah. He was an ISO member. Yeah. According to Allison, she thinks that he was better uh, critic of the left when he was in the ISO well, and like our practices. Is, it's probably true, but the ISO is gone. So. Yep. It does feel like a little bit like they're sharing this mission and uh, the mission is like art against state violence. <sighs> for forensic so architecture, for sure, but I can't say for the other ones. Well, in that statement in the art forum, yeah. the tear gas biennial... Yeah, great. Catchy, huh? Yeah. Uh, (laughs) That right? Yeah. Um, The list of incidents they're putting on record are Ferguson, U.S., Mexico border, Puerto Rico, and Gaza. And explicitly at the end of it... Right, because some of these investigations have actually completely come out and be exposed through hyperallergic. Mm -hmm. Right, hyperallergic has been actually breaking this news mm, mm-hmm. from a journalistic standpoint I'm not entirely sure that they're not involved in some of these things they're activists mm. and journalists at the same time aren't they just like the artists are activists and artists at the same time yeah apparently or they're they like just activists. like show up to like galleries and start the protest themselves they like to escalate they like to escalate they like to escalate um, mm-hmm. but they the point was that they they break this news right so they themselves are their own sources i mean okay i'm not saying that it's not true i'm just saying i'm just awareness of like who the sources are Mm -hmm. right Mm. that's deep (laughs) no 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 no. it's just that it's just that like (laughs) it's pretty convenient when you break this and it's both like they've done a very good labor of actually exposing things that a lot of other publications might have not dared mm. or thought of, even mm. like following down the trail of money, uh-huh. which sometimes in the art world you do need to do, mm. and that's what they're doing. Mm. No, it's not art, of course. <laughs> and it's a question whether that's art criticism. Okay, okay, okay. Here it is. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. It is about art insofar as the following is true. Art is activism. In their minds, of course. 
And if art is not activism, it might not even be art. Yeah. Yeah. It's not. Exactly. That's how strongly they feel about it. That's, that's the argument. Yeah, it's the liquidation. It's and if earth. not, you're participating. You are implicit in the state violence. And you're in the wrong side. You're on the wrong side. It's like statisization of politics. Yeah, actually, because you would want to think that it is the politicization of aesthetics, but they are the aesthetization of politics. They are the aesthetization of politics. Let tear gas can popping in and out of that <laughs> yeah. multicolored screen. Uh-huh. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> to the music was <laughs> something else I mean yeah, um, yeah, yeah. he touched Charles does that kind of stuff too and like about like what's the relationship between the state and guns and violence and you're like oh give me a break yeah capitalism and the organized arm of the bourgeoisie that is in power so yes yeah, I know. she knows that and everybody who watches her stuff knows that does it do anything okay the idea is we have such a slim chance at defeating the enemy, that why not do it as much as we can in Politics every... Of resistance. Right. And it's resistance and it's like quantity, right? It's like, yeah. do it. Yeah. Right. But there's no sense of qualitative change. Yeah. Well, that sounds novice, but like, it's mm. just the, the horizon of what's possible is also very limited in that sense. Um, and like, why, why, why do that to art? It's like raw affirming of suffering. It's bourgeois idealism, parading as radicalism, parading as politics, <laughs> but actually bourgeois opportunism. You know, the, the moral positioning that's happening in the art forum letter, Yeah. Um, it's positioning oneself to be like a leader among, you know, producers and intellectuals, right? That's mm. what Hannah Black has done. She's um, providing leadership. The black intellectuals are providing leadership. Yeah. Ben Davis is like, I'm just a white man. Let them lead the way. But maybe it's just symbolic. I'm just saying, I don't know. Okay, signing off. Um, the, like the critique there was like a whisper. It was like, okay, this is what great. Is that this is the way 70, forward. 80 years too late. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <there you> go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Shit Platypus Says, your one-stop shop for the symptomology, necrology, and epidemiology of the left. I am your host, Pamela Nogales. On this episode, my co-host Sophia Freeman and I are joined by Alison Hewitt Ward, a New York platypus member and art critic. We discuss the recent crack-up at the Whitney Museum of American Art and the relationship between art and political protest. In the second segment, Sophia and I interview several of Goldsmiths University's graduating master's art students about the relationship between art and freedom, and whether the censorship of art is ever justified. As always, if you have feedback, criticism, or want to send us a question, drop us an email at shitplatypussays at gmail.com. And if you want to learn more about Platypus, please visit us at platypus1917.org. That's the word platypus, followed by the numerals 1917.org. Let's get started. Girl, I ain't no star, I just say from round here. Chit. Chit. My pilot told me I'll go far if I stay from round here. You are my prisoner. Chit. 
Hell, I'm so good at missing calls, bitch, I'm perfect this year. So now we're in July, we're a couple months into the Whitney Biennial, and two weeks ago, Hannah Black, who is probably most well-known for starting the Dana Schutz controversy in the 2017 Biennial. She is the one that actually called for the Schutz painting to be destroyed, isn't that right? Yes. Um, Published an article in Art Forum with two other critics, um... Toby Haslett and Kieran Finlayson saying that Candace should indeed resign. So part of what's interesting about this is that everyone ignored Decolonize This Place, but as soon as Hannah Black mm-hmm. published that article, the following day, four artists pulled out, including Nicole Eisenman, who's probably the biggest name, and then another four pulled out the next day. Uh, within just mm-hmm. a few days of that, Candace has now resigned. Could you fill us in on who decolonized this place are? Yes. So they were founded in 2016 in response to an exhibition at the Brooklyn Museum called This Place, which was photography from Israel. Uh, So in this one instance, they made a little bit of sense. Their argument was that it was colonialist on the side of Israeli occupiers in the Gaza Strip and Palestine. So they literally called for decolonize this place, the exhibition. Since then, they have had a number of protests and kind of an exhibition in artist space in 2017, in which they call for everything to be decolonized. And I have to admit that I have made a good faith effort to figure out what the hell decolonize means, and I still don't really know. It is a demand that makes no sense to me. I would imagine that it has something to do with the institution as some kind of oppressive space. Yes. I think decolonize has become a phrase that replaces anti-racism, but, you know, Mm. it's kind of like a postmodern clusterfuck of politics where you have everything all at once. I think it does make sense for a lot of people, right? Which is why it's gaining all of this attention and support. Um, And so how does it in their own minds, like, how does it make sense? And we do have the statement. We have the art forum statement, the tear gas biennial. The art forum statement is separate and distinct from decolonize this place. So in a way, these were two competing protests for the same result. It mentions explicitly in the statement that it's not affiliated with Decolonize This Place and even notes discomfort that artists have with Decolonize This Place. Well, didn't they eventually, like, decided that the protest wasn't a great idea because it was going to silence artists of colour that were being exhibited in the show or something? And so they, I think, right. in terms of what I've understood, they were weighing up, like, getting this guy, um, Warren Candace, like... Uh, getting him to resign and then also but what does it mean if all these artists are dropping out and they're artists of color and this is like a a, an opportunity for them to have a voice or something and so they were in this conundrum ultimately they said that artists of color shouldn't feel like they need to drop out of the show which is why i think this statement in art forum right that it's like explicitly addressing that saying like no, we don't really subscribe to this, you know, pseudo-class analysis or whatever. We think that art should do something and it should act. Okay, so I think we should then now talk about how art is going to act 
Because that's the argument, right? That art will act. It's like an ethical, political gesture, as in, like, this man is bad because he has his fingers in the arms industry. Um, he needs to be removed so we can put new people in that will then better, like, I don't know, like, more ethically govern the Whitney or something. Yes, perhaps Tanders is more unsavory than other board members, but in the United States, museums run on private funding, uh, and there's no such thing as ethically pure funding. How do you think any of these board members get their money? Uh, so if you want to take their demand really to its end, if they, if they don't stop here, they're essentially calling for the destruction of museums in the United States as we know them. The Robert Barron's right of uh, the Frick Collection and the Morgan Library, etc. Right? But, but couldn't museums essentially be state-funded and that, and that these people would then put themselves eventually into these positions of um, leadership and all the money would be derived by the state or something? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the more European model, although it's been changing in Europe. Historically, European museums have had much more state funding than the United States. That changed with Margaret Thatcher, particularly in Britain. But I think we also have to ask ourselves, is it desirable to have state-funded museums? We saw what happened in the 1980s here with the National Endowment for the Arts. There were hearings in Congress about uh, Robert Maplethorpe and Richard Serra because their work was deemed obscene. So for all the mm -hmm. issues that come with private funding, there are also substantial issues with funding. Mm -hmm. Also, it's the state. It's the instrument of war. So if you're yes. worried about the tear gas. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I'm not um, condoning that or suggesting that. I'm just saying, like, what is it that they want and how and yeah. what is their radical claim and what changes are they trying to make upon society? And we're not even, like, asking a question about art now. It's just about, like, I don't know. The boycott. I think I, I want to quickly tangent because you bring up a good point that we're not actually asking questions about art. I think what's most notable to me about this episode of our world scandal is that it's not about art the art is what has completely been lost in all of this uh that's not true it is about art they have a definition of art art is activism meaning like there is a definition of art there as committed art they're very explicit about how this idea of detachment reflection in art is bullshit and that what, it, what it's stopping artists from doing is to act against state violence. And I just want to bring this in here, actually. It's specifically in the Art Forum article, in the one that's calling for resignation. The the list that, that they're against, they're like Ferguson, Standing Rock, the U.S.-Mexico border, and Gaza under the umbrella of state violence. All right, so what we have to connect the dots is how does that boycott the Whitney as an artist will result in the abolition of state violence. Like, how is it that they connect the dots? I, th I see, like, two possible scenarios. One, that the company, Safariland, that makes this stuff, right, in this case, acts as an example to other companies who are also involved, maybe, in, like, dirty money, right? The Sattler scandal has been And the tape. Right, and so moral pressure by the enlightened bourgeoisie of the world to push companies uh, to move their capital out of war technologies. Why would they do that? Because they love art so much. I'm not sure. And that's where it falls apart for me. 
that, yes, we can get Candors out of the Whitney, we can say no more Sackler funding, but I'm extremely skeptical of the idea that that basically just a slap on the wrist would motivate any of these people to get out of the industries that have sparked so much outrage. Yeah, I think that there's this question as to how the world functions in, like, the political imagination of these folks. So, because the second option is, like Sophia mentioned, like, public funding, right? That you move the Mm -hmm. money for cultural institutions away from private corporations. And then you, I mean, you have the state step in. If there's a third option, it hasn't been articulated. If there's some sort of, like, community-based funding that doesn't have anything to do with the state or corporation, some kind of anarchist imagination? I think that maybe if you talk to the decolonized people, that may be what they actually want. And, you know, there's a long history, even going back, you know, the Arts Committee of the 1871 Paris Commune, of kind of community-driven art projects. The problem with this is that we live in capitalism, uh, especially in art capitals like New York, where rent is extremely high. Uh, these th- these projects have very short shelf lives. Uh, they, they just don't last. And they're not able to put on shows of the quality that you'll get at the Whitney or MoMA or the new institution, The Shed. Um, they, it's a cool idea. Uh, but it's out of sync with the realities of this city and this art world. What do all these demands mean? So these artists like self-conceive as being on the left. So what would all these demands like mean for the left? Like whether they they were able to have like these community-funded groups or something, or whether they managed to put enough pressure on these arms dealers to decide that they like art so much that they don't want to participate in arm like in arms dealership. Or whether they got state funding, like I, I, I still don't. Um, maybe they don't even take up the left in in their demands. Um, but it's something Platypus is interested in. It ends up reproducing unconsciously bourgeois moralism. Yes, it's the same thing, except that it's being presented by these black intellectuals in the art world and being called radical. But the basic idea is to raise awareness, put pressure on corporate capital and make institutions like the Whitney responsible to the people. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. But it's when we get that make institutions responsible to the people when it starts to fall apart. Because what is that responsibility? You know, this has been throughout the 20th century, especially in the new left moment in the late 1960s, these questions became very important to arts workers. Uh, What is the relationship with the museum? In the late 60s, artists imagined museums as the factory and they were the workers, which contemporary politics has this funny trick of making the new left look really good. Uh, And to me, that was a more interesting stance. Um, But, you know, these aren't town halls. They're not government. They're not run by democratically elected leaders. Uh, And I think that for decades, people have had a fundamental discomfort with that fact. Uh, there's a, a feeling, and maybe it's nothing more than a feeling, that they ought to be part of a democratic system of governance. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess what I would say to the decolonized people is, I get it. Museums are fucked up. There's some really unsavory things about how they're funded and how work is chosen. But if you have an issue with that, you should mm-hmm. be on the left. You should be doing politics. If you want 
museums that fulfill these kind of ideals, then you need to create a politics and a society. Where's Where's the left, Allison? That they should be on platypus. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean that's the problem. There is no left. They have an impulse to want to see transformation, so their only option is to demand free healthcare from an art museum. Yeah. Yeah, I think platypus is unique both on the left in our our love for art, and unique for those of us members who are in the art world. As an element of the art world, I think it's、uh, kind of a last vestige of the avant-garde and modernism and all of these ideas. But、mm-hmm. I guess I'll pose the question kind of in a flipped way because this is something that's been on my mind a lot lately.、Um, I owe my art criticism career to Platypus. There's absolutely no way that I would be writing what I write the way I do and thinking the way I do had it not been for Platypus. But I don't know that my art criticism career has done anything in return for platypus. So, for me, it's a question of the left through the platypus approach to the left is so educational for art,、mm-hmm. but does art really give anything in return if we're thinking about building a left project? I guess the question is,、um, well, I don't want to actually. That's a good question. As people who care about the possibility of an emancipatory left, care about the decline of aesthetic judgment and the liquidation of art, right? I was just going to say it's a liquidation of the possibility for one to ex- experience、um, the the liquidation of aesthetic judgment. Yeah, aesthetic judgment in the very classical Kantian view, which is as he writes, the free play of imagination. I think when you're given the space for aesthetic judgment, that is, however, a brief moment that one could actually experience the possibility of freedom. And if、mm-hmm. we throw out aesthetic judgment and if we throw out discrete artworks, that's gone. It sort of gets to the heart of a lot of things that people find confusing about Platypus, which is relationship to the bourgeois revolutions. Like why why should we maintain a contemplative space? Because art is bourgeois. Because art is bourgeois. I think that. Maintaining that love of art is important because it's a love of of human production in its most meaningless form. We did do a series questions of aesthetics and art, and in terms of making contribution、um, for the organization, I think, for example, the panel that we had art in the commodity form at Goldsmiths in 2016、uh, with Rex Dunn was a one of I think one of the best panels that we've we've had on the topic of art,、um, and we'll link it in the episode description. And in that panel, different descriptions, different definitions of art came out. One of the definitions is、uh, by Rex Dunn, who says that art is a specific kind of labor, and so far as is an expression for the desire of human freedom.、Um, and Peter Osborne、uh, offered that art is a special kind of speculative finance capital. Uh, now that's not only what art is for Peter Ross, but nonetheless, I think he hit something right on the head there. And then Zoe Granger, she says at one point that art is a practice wherein the individual is given the freedom to think alone. Actually, she puts it in terms of has to dare to think alone, and that there is some kind of output that corresponds to that thinking. Sophia, you were there. 
I've hosted it and organized it. Yeah. And Zoe Granger is um is the the gallerist at Arcadia Missa, which, which is Hannah Black's gallery. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It was very like the the conversation, I don't know if you can see it in the transcript, but it was very heated between the different panelists. Um Rex Dunn kind of like um trying to uphold like a Marxist position um in like an orthodox way. Postmodern art privileges conception over aesthetic labour at the expense of form. Therefore, at best, such artworks are only able to critique reality in an ambiguous or ironic way. I would describe this as low-grade art or not art at all. <laughs> but this is not a new epoch for art as a postmodernist claim. They've forgotten about Dadaism, which at the very least in the early 20th century saw itself as a provocation against the bourgeoisie imperialist war along with the art market which appropriates everything including avant-garde art. shows how embedded the art as commodity is into the global financial market. Uh, and, you know, working with art students on a near daily basis, I find this is kind of a frequent refrain that the mm-hmm. political ones want to disembed their art from the commodity form and from capitalism. But I think, you know, the the issue with that desire is that even if you're doing, you know, one night only performance that isn't documented and is totally ephemeral, you know, you rented the space, you ate food that day, people paid to get there on transit in whatever way. Uh, This whole notion that art can be dislodged from capital is a pipe dream at this point. But... Mm-hmm. What we what we've kind of brushed upon in this conversation is already is like the undigested history of the nineteen sixties for art and like and the idea of there being like an outside space anyway like um kind of originating from maybe something like Altazar or something there being like an outside yes. of capitalism that could provide potential for like a rupture within the system or something coming from the outside. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Althusser. He and Marcuse were really big in the late 60s, 70s New York art world with things like the Art Workers Coalition and Robert Morris's Art Strike, which has gotten a lot of press lately. Um, although I will say, I think Robert Morris's Art Strike, as written about, I think Hannah Black mentions it in her article. Um mm-hmm. Ben Davis does, too. Yeah, I think it's been profoundly mishistoricized by both of them. Again, I I feel like I'm in this position of saying that the 60s new left were the smart ones now. But um, yes, it was an art strike, I think he said, against war, racism, and something else. Um, but it was conceived of in a profoundly different way than the protests right now, because first and foremost, it was a strike. Uh it was, I think, Black and Davis have seen kind of just the identity aspect of it and transcribed this current intersectionality politics onto it. But this was a moment when artists really thought of themselves as workers. They thought they were members of the working class with the working class. And taking all of that out of what the art strike was deeply impoverishes it. Mm-hmm. One of the comments by Peter Osborne in in the panel um, he says that uh, it's it's not the case that commodification has rendered the existence of the avant-garde problematic. 
but rather the non-existence of political movements aimed at historical change on a large scale. It's a political problem, not strictly an art problem. Exactly. Uh, and I think he was pretty disciplined in the in the panel, sort of keeping these things apart. In the absence of radical politics, there doesn't seem to be a possibility for radical art. Okay, but can there be good art? Yeah, does art depend on like polit like for for my interest in art like the and I'm also interested in politics and they seem like two kind of separate sometimes overlapping spheres uh, and then you can also like trace like the politicization of art through history and this kind of thing um, but does art need um, like radical politics to be good art or- No, can we have good art in barbaric times? I mean, haven't we had good art in barbarism? Art is barbarism. No, it's a document of culture. Does art depend on the left? Like a, a true like renaissance of like the left, not like the rotten left that we have today. And I would say like not necessarily, or I don't or I don't understand that necessarily like um conjunction of the the two um politics and art. I'm not saying that the decline of the left haven't hasn't like wholly had influence on art and like the whole of society, um and art being a part of that. But but yeah, I'm not saying that either. So at least Peter Osborne is suggesting in that panel, that um, the absence of, I guess, an emancipatory utopic left, some kind, right, because it's unspecified with him specifically, um, but of some kind, creates better conditions for art. What do we make of the the relationship between constructivism and the Russian Revolution? And like, is there, like, what is the relationship between these, you know, these early avant-gardes and the revolution? I think some of the best art of of Russia in in the teens uh, came just before the revolution. But I do think, you know, looking art historically, there's not, it's not like the artists are going to their local party meetings and that's making them better artists. But historically, I think that the best art that has been produced is produced in moments of, if not radical left politics, profound change and bourgeois development. So I'm thinking of um, the Italian Renaissance, of course, but I'm partial to the Northern Renaissance in Flanders. Uh, what Jan van Eyck was doing for the first bourgeois patrons in history creates some of the best paintings humankind has ever seen. Uh, Manet in Paris in the 1860s, which was a moment of tremendous upheaval. The Russians, as I just mentioned, I think it's these moments of possibility that engenders some of the best art. And I think that we're in a, a very stultifying moment right now. Um, and I don't think that's good for art. Yeah, and I'm not in any way saying that politics doesn't affect the conditions of making art. It's still something I'm thinking about. This is a maybe put a pin on it moment, and we're going to do um, platypus on bourgeois society, because that's what's going on here. I think that's the real, yeah. that's what we're dancing around. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Adam Smith... Uh, by the way, Spencer Leonard was just interviewed by Douglas Lane. We'll link that also in the episode description so you can get your education started on the bourgeois revolutions. Thanks, guys, for joining me. Yeah, this has been really fun. It's been good. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye, guys.
for we interview some students, some graduating MFA students at Goldsmiths University. We kind of went around with a voice recorder and asked them some on-the-spot questions whilst they were invigilating their MFA show. Uh-huh. To let you know, Goldsmiths is a university which is known for its art department based in London. Um, and it had a hot moment in the in the 90s when a lot of the YBAs were graduating from Goldsmiths. And I graduated from there in 2014. Before I was moving to London and when I was looking at art schools, um, Goldsmiths was appealing because it's seen as like the critical art school where you go mm. to learn to be critical in your, in your practice, whatever uh-huh. that means. I didn't uh-huh. know before I went. Um, and so it seemed enticing because of that. And it still has that reputation as being the school that um, generates critically thinking artists and theorists. Mm-hmm. So because mm-hmm. of this, we, we took a recorder around and asked some graduating MFA students questions about art and freedom um, and what that means for them or, what, or how they're thinking about those questions. Yeah, so we have three questions that we ask the students. So the first question that we ask them is, what is the relationship between art and freedom? Second question is a bit longer and more about the present. In the 1990s, Robert Maplethorpe's nudes were censored by the religious and moral right. And in 2017, Dana Schutz's painting, Open Casket, was censored or quote unquote, shut down by artists on the left, um, the so-called left. Is the censorship of art ever justified? And the last one, is what is the role of art in society? What is the value of art? So we we asked uh, all three to each of our five uh, interviewees and we'll, we're highlighting some of the answers that we thought were interesting and, and bring out some contrast in their own thinking. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is kind of like a litmus test of where thinking about art is, is at now, mm-hmm. seeing as these are all serious artists that are emerging into the world. They are big questions and they were they were great at engaging with us because they were all hung over from their their party the night before. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of been a Goldsmiths themed episode because um, not only did Hannah Black um, graduate from Goldsmiths um, before she went to study um, in the US, um, but we held our art and commodity forum panel at Goldsmiths too. Um, and Zoe Granger featured that on that as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're offering our own version of critical thinking and if you go to goldsmiths and um, then just let you know that there is an active participant chapter there as well yes we have reading groups we have coffee breaks we have an upcoming panel on sex on the left excellent um scheduled for the beginning of next academic year shall we Like to introduce yourself. Uh, I'm Alex Pierce. What else do you need to know about me? <laughs> uh, yes, my name is Paula Pinga Martins Nassif. Uh, I'm Fred Bungay. Uh, hi, I'm Sarah Rodriguez. Um, hi, I'm Lydia Blakely. Okay. Oh hi. God, this is deep. It's deep. Okay. <laughs> it's really deep. Uh, so, what do you think the relationship is between art and freedom? Is there a relationship between art and freedom? I think so. I, d- I definitely think so. I think that you can be very, very free with your art practice and and what you make and the directions you take it in. But I feel as though you need to often give yourself 
permission mm. to have that freedom. I feel um, in arts education especially, like from sort of watching young people come into arts education, I think that maybe sometimes they feel very limited or maybe like a little bit tentative to be free in their kind of like creative process. But I think in time, I think through, you know, dialogue with other people, through um, sort of changing the creative thinking process, I think people can then just like learn to let go. And I'm hoping that when I leave arts education, which I've been in for the past six years, mm -hmm. um, I'll definitely be able to be even freer mm -hmm. and have a kind of broader way of thinking about where I can take things. Yeah, um, I mean, I think art is a really interesting place to be in because it's only, you know, if, if we regard it as a sort of like profession, it's one of the only ones that you're actually allowed to do what you want and so basically you know if you if you wanted to address any particular subject or to speak about the the world in certain terms then you can do it and you can present it to a, a public in in the kind of the manner that you're so that you want so you don't have any kind of company or institution that's like overriding what you can do or say obviously you know that um that only applies to certain countries and there are obviously a lot of countries that you know produce art that artists are very censored and so we're kind of lucky in Europe to a certain degree but I always thought in my head that when my work starts to produce uh, problems and people you know trying to maybe give me a phone call that's maybe when the work's like successful because it actually is doing something mm. so you know yeah there's there's only a certain type of freedom you can have you can't have like a hundred percent what would be a hundred percent freedom um well, what is freedom yeah, I mean, I guess freedom is being able to, to express what you want and to say things that are normally, you know, even potentially controversial. There's some sort of, that are hard to address in other ways. And then you can like, I, I, I find it exciting that you can expose things that are most of the time uncovered. I think, yeah, I really just, I, I'm trying to focus on this in a small scale and how like what does liberation look like for like you know um it's like adrienne marie brown um the author of emergent strategies she talks about um inch wide mile deep transformation and um yeah i really like really respond to this and it was um really influential coming across her work i mean i really felt like this is how i have been working since i started to you know, try to make art, but also just um, live my life. And um, yes, yeah, so this is how I am trying to focus at this: is liberation and freedom on this small scale, and um, like focusing on it on kind of a unit basis, and like also doing that work for like internally for myself. Um, and I know that like if we focus on ourselves, that this like if we work if we work on healing ourselves from within, from liberating ourselves from within, we become like units of that and that this can radiate. Um. <laughs> what do you reckon? That is a big question. Uh, I think often art offers a space of freedom but maybe doesn't actually follow through with that. What do you mean by not following it through? Uh, because it often exists in restricted spaces. 
yeah, spaces that are not accessible to everybody. So in terms of like a physical space? Um, sometimes, yeah, possibly, or also a social space. So our next question. So in the 1980s, Robert Maplethorpe's nudes were being censored by the religious and moral right. In 2018, Dana Schultz's painting, Open Casket, was censored or attempted to be shut down by artists from the avowed left. Is any kind of censorship um, of art justified? You know, again, you've got that freedom to make that work, but, but again, um, there's like insensitivities and I think that it's that it's only right for um, for the artists themselves to maybe reflect on on the effect that it's going to have on other people, i.e. Um, the the kind of offence that it's not coming it's coming from their place, but it's not necessarily a sincere place because it's not their lived history, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to define censorship. Um, I don't think that those two cases are, um, uh, I don't think it's a good comparison. Um, I think they're really different scenarios. Um, it seems quite um, sensationalist to compare uh, Robert Mepplethorpe um, being uh, censored by the religious right. And then Dana Schultz, um, I think I think this, I mean, I, I'm not familiar with Robert Mapplethorpe's case, but it sounds like quite standard, like quite, um, you know, obvious what went on. I think Dana Schultz, um, Whitney, um, Open Casket, um, I don't think that that was a case of censorship to tell her that she shouldn't make paintings of black death. Um, Robert, Robert Mapplethorpe, like from my small knowledge of his work, he makes work that is about his life and uses his, it's a lot of self-portraits, right? And, or portraits of his friends and community. Um, Emmett Till is not Dana Schultz's community and, and that is not about her. And I mean, I think, I, I don't think that, um, I mean, even though she does claim to have some kind of connection to it, but I think it is about like this kind of conversation for me was also like what do people entitle themselves to talk about? Um, I don't think it, I mean, you know, it's like it wasn't like telling her to stop making or to necessarily even to talk about this injustice that happened to Emmett Till in this. Um, horrendous brutality that this young boy um, in, um, suffered. Um, uh, yeah, it was just people saying that um, making this painting was like undigging this violence. Um, yeah, I don't know if this is enough for you yeah. guys. Yeah. I guess a follow-up then, because I thought mm. that you said that no, it wasn't justified but then you just said that on sometimes it is justified mm. to censor art so mm. on what basis then w would it be justifiable to censor art I, th I think um, that's a I think that's probably a difficult position for any art any artist or anyone um, because 
I think that if you can, for example, if someone made some work which was particularly offensive in regards to, to sort of say being particularly right wing or particularly supportive of a particular position or seem to be particularly supportive of a particular agenda, the first thing that comes into question is how do you determine the artist's critical perspective in that? Because I know artists who make a point of trying to um, uh, excite those sorts of uh, evaluations of their work. Mm -hmm. um, even on this course, even in this degree show, there are artists who are actively working in such a way in which uh, make people aware of the complicity of the art world in uh, larger political frameworks, but they're doing it in such a way which is inflammatory. So I guess it comes down to a, a kind of process of evaluating what is the artist's agenda, what's their kind of critical position, uh, and are they genuinely, spitefully, or in, in some way trying to, um, or, or, or trying to actively um, Hurts, you know, hurt someone or, or be offensive. Um, in which case, yeah, <clears throat> I think that's a problem. Yeah, I think it's like a really touchy subject because obviously there's, you know, there's freedom and then there's. So when your freedom starts to intervene with someone else's freedom, then you should consider how that can become problematic. And obviously, you know, freedom of expression is one thing, but then you can't take away other people's freedoms or rights or. You know, it's just, you can say it's like a basic like social practice that we have to kind of engage in, but obviously that changes depending on what country you're in and what your kind of cultural says it's okay or not okay to do. But obviously there are cases which the work kind of pushes those boundaries and they're kind of, you know, to, to create something that is beneficial in the end. So it's, it's a tricky subject, but I think you have to kind of look back to the artist's intentions in the first place and see what the work is actually trying to say or do, even if sometimes it employs methods that might be, you know, considered unjustified or, yeah. So should art can comply with a certain um, country's or a certain people's, like, idea of what um, freedom is or something? Um, yeah, I mean, probably not, but there's also, I mean, if we say that there's no limits, you can literally just like kill people and do anything you want. So I think the artist herself or himself needs to figure out what those limits are for them and what are the kind of justifications or the reason behind making a work. And I think that's the most important thing that you need to know is like, why is this person doing a work? And that comes down to like basic us being in this world as human beings. Last question, what is the role of art in society? What is the value of art? So I think that really art in itself is almost irrelevant. It's the platform that can be provided within the art institution that's more important um, and it, as its place in society. Um, so for example, artwork which addresses, say, the politics of design or artwork which addresses um, or can utilise the art space to sort of, uh, in, a, in a way in which uh, performance can intersect with contemporary dance, and yet within the art framework you can criticise or you can contextualise things in an entirely different way. So I would say that's where I position art in society. So um, is the artist a critic? Yes, yes. It should always be, I think, it's always got to be some element of criticism, even of the thing that it's trying to represent. Um, and then art's value, um, difficult question. 
um, I think that art's value can sometimes be again generated by its ability to be self-aware um, would say utilize my work just because it's easy for me to talk about and say the value of my work is in referencing or being kind of very much critical of the value of what it is representing and that's design and that's the commercial the commercialization of the past and the commodification of the past and so I would say that its value comes from its ability to articulate that and reflect that um, but then it's a double-edged sword because then that can make art valuable on another level perhaps on an intellectual level and then ultimately sometimes that intellectual kind of capital can become what makes it sell and so there's a sort of a double-edged sword to that process which is always problematic when we talk about the value of art <laughs> yeah I for my own practice I try to focus on community and um, how how I how can I sustain myself and um, the community that is around me and this can this is like an expensive word as well of community um, uh, how I can sustain myself and my community and how we can work together um, as artists to make and to learn and to continue um, you know living and. This is not even, I'm not even um, wanting to, for this to be sounding like super utopic and, you know, like dreamy. It's more even just like in kind of these practical ways of like making work with other people um, and um, like skill sharing and, um, you know, if like even in kind of these practical ways of like if I get an opportunity and I know it's not right for me. And I, but I know someone that it's right for this. Um, I can forward it to them, and you know, it's kind of also this expectation of reciprocity. And um, yeah, I mean, for me, like this is how I choose to work and how I want to keep working. Um, I don't know if this is necessarily the role that art takes in society, but you know, because I think we we live in a really like dense period of like pop culture and media and um you know like artwork selling for like a lot of money and so that's kind of really massive and um i think yeah you know it, it takes on different roles and different um like paths in the world um and I think it's really, like, for me in general, I just try to focus on small scale. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's a really interesting question because I think the, the role of art in society has definitely changed throughout the centuries. But I think in the beginning of, like, say, civilization, right, art raised with humans, and it was kind of part of life, and so you, everything you did, you know, was part of maybe say a ritual or part of your daily life where art was embedded within it and had a lot of purpose. And then at some point during the 19th century and extending on and on and then with the institutions of art having been created and these kind of white cubes and gallery spaces, the art has become segregated and there's this idea of like the art should be autonomous from life and it, you know, and, and so that's what I find with, with my work as well that sometimes it's like, oh, is this is this too much information? Are you telling people too much? Is this art like, you know, so there's all these questions that are brought in, like what should art do? Mm, I don't think that art normally does this. And so people have like sometimes a hard time assessing like how much the art is, but like, I think essentially it should have some kind of craft or something you can say or do that normally doesn't happen 
in your everyday that brings something out that's extraordinary in some sense? Um, I guess, again, to offer a space of some sort of freedom and to hopefully actually follow through with that. <laughs> that seems to me to be the role. What do you mean by freedom? Um, freedom to ask particular questions or enter into particular states and have particular kinds of curiosity, I think. Yeah, which are not afforded by other spaces in society most often. I was going to ask one follow-up question. Have you ever been offended by a piece of art? Um, I think I've found pieces of art really terrible. Yeah, bad. <laughs> really bad, yeah. But is that the same as being offended? Uh, no, I don't think it is, not necessarily. I've never felt personally attacked by a piece of art, yeah. if that's what you're asking. Yeah. yeah. Me neither. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, it, Like, a lot of people seem to be talking about this nowadays, like... Some art's offensive, some art isn't. And yeah. We're just trying to figure out like what other artists think about this conversation. Can It can be a bit disorienting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to listen to all of the voices, but you don't have to take all of them mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. as truth, I suppose. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Cool, thank you. When I got back home, I found a message on the door. Regina's got to China Cross-legged on the floor All the morning jet that's smoothly flying Burning airlines give you so much more How does she intend to live when she's in Vaginas on 